we each arrive with our own needs. We each arrive at our own capacities, at our own commitments. We each come to our lives sorting out what it is we want. And the strategies of mindfulness were to address the issues that would help people where they are. And so that practice of living artfully is bringing the mindfulness to you, not bringing you to the mindfulness. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to The Globe Podcast. Welcome to part two of my conversation with Professor Douglas Brooks. We continue now our conversation about mindfulness. If you missed part one, check out last week's podcast. In this episode, we explore the power of mindfulness by digging into the ancient texts that Douglas has devoted his life to studying. I've always found that Douglas has a way of interpreting these texts in a way that deeply resonates with me. The stories he weaves around them are inspiring, and I hope they inspire you to see and experience mindfulness in new ways. Mindfulness, as Douglas gets into it in this episode, is not just something you practice while on a yoga mat or in meditation, it's a worldview. I hope you enjoy part two of my conversation with Professor Douglas Brooks. I know you're a voracious reader of literature, poetry, and so much of that has informed what you speak to today when you give lectures on pretty much anything. Like I, I see how, you know, whether it be Tolkien or the Mahabharata or you name it, poetry, it, it seeps into how you present some of these perspectives. In, in the two texts that you referred to, does the word mindfulness feature? Yes. Um, so the Pali word for mindfulness is sati, S-A-T-I, which appears in, in the title of the text that you cited, Derek. So you cited a text called the Satipatthana, called the Satipatthana Sutta. This is in the Pali language. Um, I could stop there and give us a, a brief precis of what Pali is, but later Buddhist texts in India um, move, as it were, from Pali into the Sanskrit language. So the early, the early canonization, the early collection of resources of Buddhist teaching are in this language called Pali. And Pali, just to make sure our listeners understand what this is, Pali is a language that sits between the vernacular, between the street language, and one might say the, the complexities and of cultural Sanskrit, which is like a formal language. So if we thought of, so maybe this analogy doesn't work, but if, if, we were in, if we were in medieval Europe, we might be speaking Italian, but, in, but if we were in medicine or we were in scholarship, we would be using Latin, right? We would be using the classical language. And then that classical language, Latin, would not only allow us to speak to other Italians, it would allow us to speak to any educated person, like Romanians, Swedes, Estonians, right? In the, in the European medieval world, Latin is literally how people who don't share a common language communicate. And notice that it's classist and it's elitist. So was Pali the Buddha's mother language or did he choose it, did he choose it specifically for that reason? 
Hmm. So, so not exactly. And this is, this is the important kind of contrast. Like here's the important kind of marker. Um, the historical Buddha did not speak the Pali language where we know that he spoke a street language, a vernacular language, something like Mithili, Ardhamadhali. We're not quite sure, but the, but Pali stands between the street language and the, ex, and the much more excruciatingly formal complexity of Sanskrit. So, and, and Pali basically simplifies and allows a more accessible language. So it, it, on the one hand, it's a formalization. It's, a, it's an elevation of the vernacular. So think of the street languages, we'll call that the vernacular, right? Pali takes that a step up in some, in, or a step away into a more formal language, but not all the way to Sanskrit, where, where so Pali has a simpler, uh, a simpler way of doing things. So let me give you a simple example, like just before us. So the word in Pali for mindfulness is sati, right? But the word in Sanskrit is smrti, S-M-R-T-I. And you can just hear that, and a bit, let me give you an even simpler one to follow, because that's a little hard to follow. You, like, and sati to smrti, like smrti to sati, think of it that way, smrti the Sanskrit word, sati the Pali word. Um, but in Pali, the goal is nibbana, N-I-B-B-A-N-A, which is of obviously the Sanskrit nirvana, right? So what you're hearing in Pali is sounds becoming contracted or simpler, and the grammar follows that same kind of pattern. So these early texts, well, and maybe not even historically early, but traditionally, these what we call the Pali canon, the collection of material that that's associated, that's written, composed in that language. The Pali canon is oral. It's sung and repeated long before it's written. And then it, and then it, it, it acquires its, its form over centuries. So at the Buddha's Parinibbana, at the Buddha's passing, it's about 500 years before the kinds of teachings that we see codified and rigorously repeated in the Satipatthana, for example. Or the Vasudhimaga, is that where that is? Well, that's, that's centuries later, too, because that's a commentary, right? The text, you're, the text Derek just cited um, is, is almost 900 years after the historical Buddha. The Satipatthana is probably a first or second century text. Very difficult to put a date on this material, but the Satipatthana belongs to the collection of what we call the suttas, or the discourses of the Buddha. And traditionally, um, Buddhism tells us that at his, at his final passing from human birth, so Nibbana or Nirvana is when, is when the prince, is when Siddhartha becomes the Buddha, right? And then he has a storied 50-year career in the state of Nirvana. Like, like when you are a Buddha, you are in Nirvana. His passing or his death is called Parinirvana or Parinibbana. But tradition says that at his passing, he did not appoint a successor, and he invited his immediate disciples to organize this 50-year career of teachings in what was called the Three Baskets. In Pali, that's called Tipitika. In Sanskrit, it's called Tripitika. You hear the Tripitika? Hear the three in there? There's, that's the word three, right? So the Three Baskets, and the Three Baskets were Sutta, were Vinaya, Sutta, and Abhidhamma, right? So the rules, the Vinaya, 
like how do we behave and conduct ourselves as monks, as nuns, as lay people? Sutta, what did he say? Usually translated the discourses of the Buddha. And then Abhidhamma, the third category of the three of the three baskets, was designed to be kind of reflection, philosophy. It's more complicated body of technical material. Now, all of that coalesces, and we get different kinds of work. So this Satipatthana Sutta, which is basically translated the Mindfulness Sutta, belongs to this collection of discourse, this collection of conversations. And here, um, the, the Buddha is teaching meditation. He's teaching mindfulness. He's teaching Sati. And the original meaning isn't necessarily mindfulness. Is that correct? It's more mm. memory, remembrance, a kind mm. of attentiveness. Sure. So let's let's go back and, and think about that, right? So so sati is smirti in Sanskrit. The verbal root um, is smr, S-M-R in Sanskrit. And just for our, not to get too technical about this for our listeners, but but one of the things that connects Sanskrit to Pali and to the way all of these traditions of yoga, Hindu, Buddhist, Jain, Sikh, the way these folks think is to go back to roots, to go back to sources. And there's nothing more rooted or more sourced in the ancient South Asian consciousness than the verbal roots of language. Because, because not, just the, not just the words, but the roots for words, these are formalized. These are, these are collected. They're, and because... It's from the roots of things, quite literally, that that the trees and the and the and the blossoms and the fruits of consciousness appear because they because words are literally rooted. And it also tells us something really important, and that is that a behavior or a practice or an idea like being mindful is in fact rooted in a verb. It's rooted in a in a so it's a noun. We can say, I'm mindful. But to but nouns derive from verbs. Just pause on that as a contemplation. Like everything begins in an action, in a movement, in a dynamic. So the verbal root for mindfulness is is smur in Sanskrit, and that quite literally means to um, to remember, to recollect. Sometimes it means to bear in mind. Right. So. So the word is, so the Sanskrit words are smara, smarana, sometimes smriti. Anytime you hear that smur sound, that smara sound, you're in, you're in that realm. Like all those words kind of work that, they work that seam of meaning. And, and it often has to do with a process of reconstructing thought and feeling. So there's, there's something intimated in these very early connections to the word mindfulness that have to do not with kind of grabbing a memory, but remaking a thought in a very kind of almost modern way. Maybe I'm projecting a little too far on this, like maybe this overstates the case a little bit, but mindfulness isn't the process of kind of remembering something as if it were stored some way, like we were unlocking a memory. But mindfulness is a process, because it's part of a verb, of recreating. Like memories are recreated. They're remade from bits and fragments. And so to be mindful in a certain way is to be in a process 
of collecting and recollecting and recreating a process of thought and awareness, a memory. A memory isn't a thing. A memory is a process. Yeah, that's it. Okay, so I want to unpack why that's important and how that fits into the Satipatthana Sutta and why mindfulness is such an important part of this mm. project of liberation. But why, why is there even that need at that point in human history? Like why, like, is there a through line? Like, like this, this, this process of, of remembering, of, mm. of, of attention, of awareness, the, the, the practice of it, the expanding of it, uh, is there anything like, is there, is there a through line, for example, from Vedic world to mm. Buddha? Is there anything to say about how this kind of emerges from the second urbanization of mm. humans at time? Like the need, like the project of liberation itself. I love how you speak to how that presupposes uh, mm. that there be something from which to an, renounce, from right. which to liberate. Well, a contemplative life, let's start here, like a contemplative life, a life of a life that invites us to turn to, to personal and deeper questions of reflection are, is precipitated by at least two important other factors. The first is you need, you need the time and in some sense the bourgeois privilege to, be, to ask yourself, what's the meaning or why am I here or how does my mind work? In other words, if we're... If we're if we're contending with survival, we may have a we may have a rich and serious reflective life, but we don't have, in some sense, the goals that are that are described in mindfulness, which is a process of deepening and unraveling and considering the peculiar experience of embodied humanity. So the first thing we need is we we, we need a world that, in some sense, supports this. Like that gives us a context for that being possible. And then I think, uh, interestingly and rather paradoxically, we need its inverse. Like we need a world that when we look out at it, we, we think, what a mess, like what a maelstrom, what a storm, right? So, so on the one hand, we need a, a kind of a culture and a, and a situation that supports us. And on the other hand, and you see this in Buddhist texts, you see this later on in the Hindus, particularly the Gita, where Krishna makes the same point, you need a pebble in your shoe, whether it's, whether it's, I need to find out about myself, and that's going to require a more stable world, or the pebble in my shoe is, I look out at the world and I go, you've got to be kidding me, or what a horror, or my goodness, is there anything else? What more, what else? Or, or to turn this all the way to the revolution of asceticism, because this is the Buddha is the story of a family business, right? A prince who renounces the world. He walks away from success. Well, from worldly success. Well, that tells us that worldly success was not what he wanted. That would be that that would be the first kind of part of the quest. But but that the world itself could only deliver that. It could only deliver. You know, it's it happens to all of us. Like. With, with even a modicum of success, like you're 40, you wake up, you have, a, you, have, you have family, you have a job, you have career, you have friends, you have culture, politics, and economics around you. And you say to yourself, is that it? Or you look out at that world as we are now with COVID and political strife and war around the world and unnecessary famine and 
injustice and the horrors of, of racism and climate change, and you say to yourself, is there something else? Is there something more? Or I, or, or I just need, in some sense, to retreat from that, to reclaim and regather or maybe refurbish myself. Now, that tradition of um, mindfulness is, has always sort of two directions, right? It has a refreshment, reflection quality. Can I, can I see more deeply into myself, into my worlds, into my feelings, into my, the organization of my heart and my, my mind? Like, who am I, right? It has a reflective quality, but it also has a refreshment quality. And you see that in GLOW. Like, people come to yoga class. You do a class, you feel better, right? You get refurbished. You get reclaimed. You get refreshed. But you also get a certain amount, and let's be honest, of retreat, Right? And then you can re-enter the world. Well, how much and to what degree are you retreating? Or re that, that turns all the way to renunciation in these traditions. Like permanently, as it were, such as it is, dissociating, abdicating, fundamentally renouncing worldliness for some other path. Now, what makes this fascinating is that in the centuries right before the historical Buddha, such a project of, of reflection becoming refreshment, refreshment becoming retreat, retreat becoming renunciation. Does that make sense? Like in that order. Would these that, be the, sh the shramanas, the shramanic? Yeah, that, that's going to take us to these characters who are striving, the shramanas. That's a, kind, of a, it's kind of a term used in tradition to describe all of these tradition, all these non non-Hindu, non-Vedic traditionalist seekers, and we're going to put the Buddha in that category, the founder of the Jayana tradition, the Jains, Mahavira, he's also a Shramana. There are others, there are, were other phenomena, none more successful than the Buddhists and the Jains. Can we step back for a moment to help us understand why there was even this need for this project of liberation? Why would that project involve renunciation or a disconnection from everyday life and how these traditions have uh, created a progression that led to a formal renunciation, a dissociation from the world, ultimately as a legitimized alternative human choice, like uh, an alternative to what society, culture, civilization offered at that time? Yes. One of the things that we learn in the legend of the Buddha is that by his age, like by his time, the notion that a prince such as it is could disappear in the night and then in some sense be discovered as a seeker in the forest living living in a kind of in a dissociation in a formal kind of renunciatory role as an ascetic that by 500 or so before the christian era in india probably 300 years even long before that that there was that this ancient culture had legitimized such a character and it's really important to understand in the in the history of india and in the history of religions that what we call the old vedic world like the ancestral worlds that give birth in some sense to the contemplative and the contemplative worlds of the Buddha and the Shramanas and the other characters who appear, like what creates yoga 
comes from the Vedic world. So it's just that's where the earliest use of the word is. Mm-hmm. That's we can go back and talk about that again sometime. But what but the Vedic worlds did not have these characters of formal renunciation. They didn't have this kind of legitimized social possibility that like, oh, our son disappeared into the wilderness and he's seeking what? He's seeking something. And this is a, a society by long by the time of the Buddha that legitimizes this project, that sanctifies these characters, that that reveres them. Like those who those who in some sense dissociate and, and renounce the world are understood to be on a deeper spiritual journey, on on a higher ethical plane. They're, they are they are socially and and personally no longer driven by by the mundane concerns of a worldly life rooted in in desire and success and acquisition and the sort of ordinary terms. Um, pause there for a moment just to remember that the Vedic vision of life's goal is live long and prosper. I mean that the ancient Vedic world isn't trying to to find a, re, a, a liberation from worldliness. The Vedic world is trying to find a meaningful worldliness and in some sense the perpetuation of that cycle of, of worldly meaningful success. However that's going to be defined, we can, we can work that out. But by the time of the Buddha, we have a radically different model. Reflection, recollection, personal interrogation, and then the kind of therapeutic advantages of a contemplative life and the seriousness of a reflect of a reflected life that refreshes and rejuvenates and and kind of informs our lives this project turns to what becomes the determinative force in indian culture from the time of the certainly from before the time of the buddha and that is that we're not just interested in a kind of the therapeutic benefits of mindfulness like a refreshment a reflective life, a process of learning about oneself and a deepening so that we can kind of go back to the world. We are, that model has now shifted from here are the benefits of the therapeutic process. Like here's the mindfulness process that can help people. But the goal is, is a liberation from these constraints and conditions and limitations that define worldly success. And that that's uh, that transition is is something I think most students of yoga probably never never really learned or studied. But a Vedic world's definition of success is a renunci is is by the age of the Buddha the the definition of failure. <laughs> that is that is the yogis who are going to be on the Hindu side of this mindfulness introversion are also going to be equally asocial and equally dedicated to a spiritual liberation that is everything but the world. Um, So one of the simplest ways to sort of make this dichotomy clear is that that there, there are kind of 
two agendas in these contemplative traditions that we see in the mindfulness of early Buddhism. The first we've already, and we've outlined them already, but the first is a kind of therapeutic agenda. Like how do these ideas, thoughts, and practices help us live? How do they get us through a day and how do they enrich us? How do they empower us? How do they answer to a deeper human longing that, that kind of lets life be better? There's that side of the argument. The, the obverse side of that coin by the time of, of this is, is liberation from the world, no longer being defined not only by its ordinary constraints and terms, but simply, but ultimately arriving at an invulnerability, an exception, a state of immunity from the world. And there's no way to read a text like, for example, um, the Satipatthana and fail to recognize that that goal that they call Nibbana or Nirvana is in some sense, specifically not samsara. Like, it's not the world. For, to put this in a meme form, everything that is not nirvana is samsara. That's how the Satipatthana Sutta is going to see the world. That means that for all the refreshment and interrogation and therapeutics that mindfulness brings, the purpose of those practices is to arrive at a place of awakening, Buddha, in which one is simply no longer subject to the conditions, limitations, and trammelments, the terms of that, the terms of everyday existence. They, you need, you, you the Buddhists, the Shramanas, this, this rise of the yoga traditions in contrast to Veda is predicated upon a very simple premise. And that is that there is a human possibility of awakening, Buddha, of victory, Jaina, Jinnah, or of perfection, Siddha. These are all kinds of words that suggest that there is a state or a realization, an awakening, that, that is truly ultimate and solves the problematics of everyday existence in a final way, in a conclusive way, in a way that is qualitatively different than the most refreshed, most aware, most therapeutically healed or capable person. Now, the, the further predicate of this revolutionary notion that there are Buddhas, there are, there, are, there are awakened beings, is that those characters, as it were, will attend to us, to those who are not yet awakened, and that they will give us resources of ideas and practices and strategies for our betterment, for our refreshment, for our healing. You know, the, the metaphor of, of these awakened beings as healers, as physicians, is a common trope, especially in Buddhist lore. You see it everywhere. Um, and, and as it were, they, and, and so the traditions, the simplest way to put this is, there's a feature of what the Buddhists are, Buddhists are going to call wisdom that means liberation. Like wisdom is, are all the things you need to know. It's all the experience acquired that suggest that takes you to this place of final awakening. 
And what, but what such a wise being as an awakened Buddha does or says is brings back some kind of process that is skillful and useful for, um, for a, a, in, in the expression of compassion to the world. So later Buddhism talks about the pairing of wisdom and compassion. But one is, one is as deftly and, and adroitly compassionate as one is wise. That's kind of a premise throughout the entire sort of organization of this, this sort of thinking, this sort of project. Like the most compassionate people are the most awakened. There's just no doubt that that's how they think of it. And, and what that compassion entails is, is the notion that we may not complete the project of awakening in this birth, but that we may be given the tools and, and evolve the karma, such as it is, that would allow us to refresh and therapeutically advance ourselves to the next birth. And that notion that we are subject to the cycles of birth and in a process of improvement makes us seekers. And that distinguishes us from those who are no longer in the process of death and redeath, death and rebirth, no longer in samsara, but are now liberated from that process. And so Buddhas. So is it true that what was new and original in these Buddhist traditions was the presentation of the explanation of a practical method that would mm. allow for everything you just outlined. And, and if so, oh. that then takes us to these four foundations of mindfulness. Mm. Well, at the same time that in the same age that a text like the Satipatthana, the mindfulness discourse is being evolved on the Buddhist, in the Buddhist tradition, very comparable material, very, very strategically, uh, methodologically comparable material is being evolved in other, one might say, quarters and sectors of society. So everyone's so borrowing and sharing, obviously. Everybody, everybody. And in fact... Culturally we, appropriating, I guess we should say. And across, if it's a good idea, it's our idea, mm -hmm. right? The entire history of, of yogic spirituality is beg, borrowing, stealing, and plagiarizing whenever possible, because if it's a good idea and it works, let's do it, right? So the Buddhists formalize this in a text like the Satipatthana pretty early on. But if we compared much of the practice to even to a text like Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, we would find a remarkable confluence uh, and similarity of practice and method, we would find very different, a very different sense of what the goal means, like what the goal, what, what is it we're supposed to get? Like, what's the end game? What is ultimacy? There, there's, a, there's an ocean of difference between, say, what Patanjali's Yoga Sutra says and the Satipatthana's understanding of what Buddhas are, right? But if we looked at it from how do you meditate, let me put it another way. If we saw two meditators of the era of the Satipatthana Sutta, kind of learning their craft, like learning the practices of mindfulness, we would not be able to tell whether they were Hindus or Buddhists or Jains or anything else. Right. That is, the methodology, the practice is deeply shared. Yeah, and just for, for our listeners in terms of time stamping, where do you place the 
yoga sutras relative to oh that's a, again you know dating texts out of ancient india is, is difficult at best but i would say if the, if the if somewhere somewhere in the early centuries before the christian era somewhere between the second and the second century so after well after the, the buddha well right but but a text like the satipatthana sutra isn't really collated and canonized for two or three hundred years after the historical buddha mm. so we have we have we have orality we have practices like when you look at a text like this like the mindfulness sutta this this is very rigorously kind of systematically mapped out this is this is this has been edited and redacted for a long time i mean we don't even know how long but but clearly there's almost almost 3 500 years between the historical buddha as a character and and this text landing as a fixed form of what we would call the pali canon and similarly when we look at a text like yoga sutra which is really more likely not the work of a single author that's disputed territory but probably not very deeply disputed anymore you're seeing a collection and redaction and collation of all kinds of ideas that have had probably centuries of provenance and and practice before they arrive at what we now recognize as the text like it's not like somebody sat down and wrote this it's that it passes through conversation and the traditions of this is very important for our listeners to understand things that are things that are oral are always understood in ancient india to have more more veracity and more import than anything composed the oral tradition is the oral tradition is not only before written traditions like it's not only like all of these these materials existed as oral compositions before they were written compositions it's it's even more than that it's that hearing it and passing it orally is superior to reading it and studying it always like that's that never is going to go away in india like the the idea that there's a there's a, a personal and intellectual superiority to to orality over written composition written written text and written argument comes much later in these in these worlds as having authority veracity can i tell a story here because it's a really good one um there's a, a greek historian who who is in the aftermath of Alexander the Great. So Alexander of Macedon is in India, right? Around around 320 before the Christian era, right? So he's about he's he's not far after the Buddha, right? He's a couple maybe 100 years, 150 years Alexander arrives in India, and one of the documents that's left to us is uh, by a character named Demosthenes, and he tells us with real astonishing wonder that these folks who live in indica they they don't write things down they transmit them he says from ear to ear and he says they are they're more reliable deal makers than anyone we've ever met because they will gather a quorum agree what they heard mm. 
and, and keep their word. And he says, and this goes all the way into their religious worlds, right? So what makes something true, like we live in a world, Derek, where we say, if it's not written, it's not real. Ancient India lives in a world that says, written things can change, written things can fail, written things could be amended. But if you and I heard this, and we have a third person listening who agrees, if we've come to that level of agreement, that's that holds a standard of authority and power far more than any written word. Let me give you a good example out of the Buddhist text, because our mindfulness text begins this way, too. So virtually every discourse, every sutta of the Pali Canon begins with a, a phrase. It begins, eva mayasatam, which means, thus by me has it been heard at one time. It doesn't say the Buddha wrote this down. It doesn't say this is true because scholars commented. It says, this is true because once this was heard and we are literally mindful, we are recollecting, we are remembering. The things that you remember are truer than the things that you write because memory is more durable and mindfulness more empowering than, than, than something that could be written because that's, that's a volatile piece of the world. That's a material artifact. And of course, ancient India carries on that tradition and, and never really invests in the material culture of that, that, would, that would elevate writing over orality. Hmm. I don't want to give too much like the history of religions lecture here, but the Chinese like were really good at inventing paper and advancing the technologies because they were a different kind of world. India's world is about listening. It's about remembering. It's about hearing. So it makes sense that something so valuable and durable as mindfulness would feature so prominently mm -hmm. in Buddhist traditions. I found it fascinating that the word emerges and appears in so many different places like it's mm. it's in the four noble truths it's un under the fourth as number seven right mindfulness mm -hmm. uh you know that eightfold path division is is in you know virtue concentration mm -hmm. wisdom right mindfulness which is part of concentration as well as well as right effort and right concentration it's part of the seven factors of enlightenment like number mm -hmm. one right. is mindfulness mindfulness is one of the five faculties it's... Well, right. So let's let's think about that. You know, even because you've you've sort of enumerated all the places where where and there's, there's more. Mindful... I have a, I have a oh, longer yeah. list, but we don't need to get a into all list, of it. right? Because it becomes a practice. It becomes a stratagem. It becomes a a method of of cultivating and evolving and developing our abilities as human. Now, now th let's think about that for a moment in a more meta in a more meta sensibility. What I mean is. The yogic world, the world that the Buddhas, that the Buddhists are emerging, the way they're using this word mindfulness is telling us something even more fundamentally important. And that is, we don't experience the world, we experience our experience of the world. So in effect, everything is mindfulness. That is, the world out there and what we call the world is quite literally, well, not to overstate the case, not to become solipsistic, but it's really just in our minds. Like the world is how we conceive it. It's how we construct it. And, you know, it, that, that ethos, that sensibility, that the world has its facts, but we change the world by changing ourselves, 
And by examining our perceptions and understanding our cognition and, and taking seriously and interrogating the process of how the mind constructs the world, ancient India is among the, the most sort of remarkable places to come to the conclusion that the world we experience depends upon the kind of experience we're having. So on that point, the four foundations of, of mindfulness, which I've seen translated in different ways. I don't know mm -hmm. if that's worth noting or not, that, that the Satipatthana Sutta has, seems to be translated, that title itself seems to be translated in different right. ways. Well, the reason it does is because uh, in a certain way, um, the Satipatthana Sutta is trying to make Sati into Patana. That is to say, so the word, so the right. word we never Sati got, is, We never got to the etymology of Patana. Yeah, yeah, so let's do that. That's easy, right? So Patana is, comes from a verbal root that means that means a foundation, or it's it's the, it's a patana is it's gets it go further. It will, and not to beguile our listeners, but it will take you to the English word stand. So, so that patana, that tana, takes you to stana, like Afghanistan, like you hear that word, right? That takes you to the English word stand. It comes to it comes from a verbal root that means to stand, to be firm, to be resolute, and that's why. A, a tana, a patana, is, is taking a stand. It's creating a foundation, right? And so interestingly, it's telling us that, that, that we need a foundation for mindfulness, but that, that, but that sati is a kind of stabilizing foundation. In other words, there's not only going to be foundations for mindfulness, but that the very process of remembering and recollecting is how we take a stand. It's, it's actually what makes the world hold together. Like I'm using the word stand here, but what I really mean is like a foundation. It's something we can really count on. It's the very definition of something that's real. Now, again, take good note here because Buddhism is a tradition that emphasizes impermanence, ephemera, right? The world is in a cycle and a process of its own entropy, of its own deconstruction. The world is anitya or anitta, as we say in Pali. It's impermanent, right? And that, and so how do we find reliability, foundation? How do we find a sense of grounding in a world that is, by definition, especially from these sort of principled insights, itself volatile, impermanent? in a certain sense, unreliable itself, because it's changeable. How do we find a foundation in a changeable world? And that, I think, is part of what's in the title of the text. The, way, the only way we can, we can found ourselves in a world that is dangerous, volatile, impermanent, is to, is to create a process in which that that otherwise, that otherwise similarly volatile, dangerous mind, that otherwise, that otherwise process of memory and recollection would be just like the world if it didn't have a foundation. And so the Satipatthana Sutta wants to say, mindfulness needs four pillars, the same way like a building or an elephant has four pillars. And that's a metaphor used in the text, right? And to take a stand, to, to create a structure, because otherwise, what makes up the mind, the mati, the, the, the smyrna, 
right? The thing that recollects is just as unreliable and dangerous and impermanent and volatile as everything else. So we need foundations for a process. And then it's going to give us very kind of carefully and deliberately these so-called four foundations. And that word foundation is the second half of the text. So it's sati, mindfulness, um, patana, and that really is that really is stana, and that really is the word foundation. And we don't have time to unpack all four, but can you give us the high level on the four? Sure. So the so the the simplest way to to think about this is is and here's another gift of all yoga traditions is that they begin they they work they work from one might say the most embodied the most the, the most kind of crude sensibility. So the first of the mindful, the first of the foundations is quite literally the body, right? So what, so, and, and we're going to move from, take this, take this sort of as a stratagem, right? All yoga texts move from what we would call the gross to the subtle to the sublime, right? And the, and, and the gross in the sense of the most material, the most, Kind of, and the more material it is, the more kind of unreliable it is, the more volatile it is. In a certain sense, the more help it needs. So while we can found ourselves on the body, the body, the body as the first kind of principle is, is itself the most dangerous and volatile piece. It's, it's what needs the most help. And so when, when the first foundation is called kaya, and there are lots of words in the Sanskrit and Pali language for the word body, Kaya, Deha, Sharira, like the words go on and on. There's lots of ways, but it's it's going to go to things like breathing and posture, right? And other and other things that are very sort of bodily. Then it's going to take to the next step. And so so what so how does a body what's more subtle than the body? Well, feelings and sensations are more subtle than the physicality. And that's going to be the second foundation, Vedana, right? And then the third is, is something like, well, then what, what guides, like what interprets, how do you know we're having a feeling? Well, that third foundation is going to be chitta. It's going to be the mind, right? So you see how we're going from gross to subtle. And then the last feature of it is dhamma, right? And that's going to mean the Buddha's teachings. And those teachings are part of the foundation because they're going to take us to the sublime. So you can see this process of body, feeling, mind, and teaching as a process that moves from the more sort of gross and elemental, like kind of the features of being physical, to the features of being emotional and, and, and sentient, to being mental and then creative and then sublime, no longer contingent on the body. And that's going to be, the, that's going to be a fundamental organization of this text, which is following a pattern we're going to see everywhere in yoga not just here in this particular kind of primary resource of, of early Buddhist mindfulness. We're going to see it everywhere. Even in Patanjali, we're going to see that same project. Think of it as body, mind, body, feeling, mind, the sublime. Like that. Just follow that, follow that sort of basic model and, and pull the thread through. And in Indian traditions of yoga, we can't get to the sublime until we've gone all the way, as it were, back to the body. 
Now, later traditions are going to tell us, well, that, that body that we started with, that's just as sublime as the sublime. But we're not really quite there in a text like the Sutta Nipata, or, or, or I'm sorry, the Satipatthana. Here, that those disciplines, that the view of what the body is, is not really the same view as what the Buddhist teachings are. Does that make right. sense? Like, quite this dismal. is a praga. This is a process. Yeah, the body is, is definitely a problem in, in some of these earlier texts. Well, the, well, well, again, there's body, and body is a gift. God, body is a blessing. But body is a problem when we get to feeling, because the feelings are superior to bodies. And chitta, minds are superior to feelings and bodies. And then dhamma, fourth foundation, teachings of the Buddha, those are superior to all of those other three things. So this is clearly a process, and it's clearly a hierarchy. Now, that hierarchy, as I said, is going to kind of be turned on its side or turned upside down in later kind of much more sophisticated rereadings of the problem. But the body, you, what you just said, Derek, is exactly right. The body's a problem, and when we have addressed that, we move on to feelings, to sensations. And then, and then what? well, how do we address those? Like, what's the, what's the leverage we have? The leverage we have on that process is the mind. So think of this as, as, as implementing successive tools that give us empowerment, that give us leverage, that give us influence over different processes that would otherwise command us. So part of like part of the assumption of this of this text is that if we don't address these matters that are just fundamentally about having a body. Like until we address things as simple as as breathing, as posturing, as as the way we are attracted and repulsed by experiences of the world, by the kind of elemental features of being physical. If we don't take care of that first, we can't we can't go further and examine the complexity of feelings like like things are pleasant or unpleasant or things are are clear in or or appreciative or not that we we can't get to the next step and then and each one of these foundations is quite literally an ascent it's a step so that that's that's the core of the foundation now because they're, we we and, and they literally build upon each other so it's a satipatthana it's a foundation built upon creating more structure, more coherence, because one process leads us to another. And there's no way we'll unpack that entire text. And to, to do so, <laughs> we'd have to talk about bare attention, clear comprehension, the concept of, of no soul or, or no self, like the only right. way, the middle way, how mindfulness functions as a controlling faculty as memory as activity as a selective and integrative action of mind as a mm -hmm. as, 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 as you know, character building uh, right and, and what you're showing us derek is is that this process of mindfulness in this very early foundational resource is systematic it's comprehensive it's inclusive that that and, and, and as you said before, and, and all the, the matters that you were just pointing to, these are long, complicated lists yes. of processes, right? And like I said, this is a, this is a schemata 
of like a, an engineering drawing. Does that make sense? Like this is an entire architecture of consciousness. Right. And these are the plans. And here are the processes. And here's the step in the order. You know, and what makes these early Buddhist texts, especially this one, so fascinating is that, you know, like, you know how, you know, you get something nowadays and you get the instructions in the box or you kind of like got to look it up on YouTube or something. Yeah. These are really good instructions. Like these folks weren't fooling around. <laughs> they, they really, they had, they not, they had very detailed maps and that's what we're looking at. Right. We're looking at a very, a very integrated, comprehensive, inclusive process and architecture for a practice. And for those interested in it, it's not a long text, this mm -hmm. particular text. No, but it is a text that, um, for those interested in kind of finding out more about this, it is a text that not only is summarized, but it, it kind of, it points to each one of these lists or each one of these kind of important ideas or then subcategories of ideas, it's going to give you, it's going to give you two things. It's going to, it's going to give us pointers to hundreds of other texts where just one idea in here becomes the main topic in another text. Like just any one of these ideas, any one of these particular concepts in a list of seven or nine concepts becomes the focal point for an entire, for an entire next text. Like this becomes an encyclopedic project. And then, and then, not to interrupt you, but then to, there's going to be commentary in history. And there's going to be, there are going to be writers who come and pick up the, and, and pick up the Satipatthana Sutta, and they're going to write thousands of pages explaining every last detail. Like the, the, the commentarial fan club on mindfulness is is vast like and centuries long and then they'll they'll comment and then they'll write sub commentaries on that like commentators will write on other commentators and then that's going to cross then these texts will be translated then they'll enter other worlds and eventually this text in pali will make its way through sanskrit into tibetan and we're going to get those folks writing about this with more lists like with more with specifications and details. Very difficult subject to talk about without first appreciating how, like, you know, what word we would use for this, maybe, like, the seriousness with which they took every little thing. That's what I was hoping to convey. Because when I open these texts and spend very little time on them, I, that's the immediate sense that I get, that there's so much more underneath the hood that many of us are exposed to versions of mindfulness that are about, say, reducing stress, mm -hmm. uh, experiencing more calm, living in the now or the present, which mm -hmm. all of those and more, what, you know, while it is all of those and more, you know, certainly in this Satipatthana Sutta, you know, it is a surprising thing to, to note that that's not necessarily the end game right. here. It's, it's not the main event. It's a means to an end. And in fact, and a lot of us also are exposed to a definition of mindfulness that is about like experiencing the present, um, sometimes the word um, um, attachment or in a non-attached way, or, you know, there, there's so many different methods or, or, mm -hmm. or sort of um, selective, carefully manicured 
renderings, uh, some of which are creative and innovative. It's just not the whole picture. And so that's part of what I wanted to, to present. Um, May I just make one more suggestion here, Derek? Yeah. And, that it, and without trying to be, without suggesting that we're being condescending in any way. Absolutely. That's not, that's uh, not what I'm trying but, to do. No, 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 no. And I understand that entirely. But, but here's my point. When, when we talk about, say, really, like people will ask folks because people say, I would love to learn to meditate. I need to be less stressful. Now, to be, to be honest, that relief of stress, that kind of first level, that, 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 that level of anxiety, no matter how deeply we experience it, no matter what to what it's connected to, like bodily or physical stress is understood to be, bear with me, the most superficial outcome of this practice. Right. Like, like that's, that's Kaya, that's body down at the most basic level. Now that might be all anyone wants or needs. Right. The agenda of this text isn't to like get us to less stress or, or, or to allow us to live in a deeper sense of our own presence in the now, like those are lovely matters of human possibility and agenda. But as far as the Satipadana text, Sutta thinks it's like, that's like, it'd be good to get to the first grade because that's just, that's just the more basic because it has very, let me put it the other way. It has very serious aspirational agendas. Like this isn't about stress or, or, feeling connected to the immediacy this is that all of that by the way in in the text is under a single category it's under a category called suddhi or visuddhi it's all categorized as purification like that and when, that's a very difficult word for us but this is the kind of text where that uses the word purity to mean this most elemental addressing of of physical embodied conditions. Like if you go to your yoga mat today because you're, you, you physically need like to energize and to be refreshed and to be relieved, a text like this is gonna call that by the Sanskrit or Pali word is gonna be purity. It's not like cleanliness and it's not like some, some penance. It's a process of kind of bringing us to our optimal embodied possibility. After that, the aspiration of a text of mindfulness is going to want to take us to very serious investigations of, of grief and sorrow and lamentation, which are, of course, our reflections on love, because the more we love, of course, the more deeply we will grieve. And how do we address grief? And how do we relieve ourselves of and, and refresh ourselves living in the burdens of grief and lamentation? And then ultimately, suffering itself and can we become kind of not only enriched and appreciative of the dimensions of suffering but can we relieve suffering or to be more buddhist can we extinguish suffering now that may sound kind of lofty super normal radical but that's what nirvana means right the, the extinction of suffering is the extinction of desire is the extinction of suffering that's the phrasing of the third noble truth of the Buddhists. And then how do we walk the path in this state of, of truth, of awakening that is the Buddha? That's the fourth agenda of the text. Like it tells you explicitly, like what's it, what do Buddhas look like? What do they experience in the world? And why are they relieved of grief and suffering? Why are they 
now bluntly invulnerable to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Like, how did they, how did they find their way past vicissitudes and, and conditions and limitations? Because that's the claim of the text. This, let's, let's maybe summarize here in a very simple way. This is not simply a text to learn a therapeutic or, or, or refreshing process. This is a text that wants to take us all the way through the Buddhist spiritual, I'm going to say it, religious agenda. It wants to take us all the way to enlightenment. Yes. And that's, that's no matter of, gee, I'm feeling, I, I got to, you know, I learned to meditate and I'm feeling better about myself. Like, that's, that's fine. That's a lovely thing. Don't mistake me. But the agenda of this, of these resources is, is for lack of a better term, it's religious. And, and, and it's not even lack of a better term. I'm going to tell you, I think it is religious because the end game is a Buddha and a Buddha is immune and no longer subject to the limitations and conditions of what the rest of us experience. Now, I think that's pretty exceptional kind of claim that kind of spills over into what we would have to call it religious. Well, there's a metaphysical claim being made post-life that isn't subject to any kind of empiricism. Well, yeah. I mean, because, and part of the empiricism of the Buddhists, like all the yogis, is to say, well, you'll know it when you get it. Which, right? is, which is the religious claim. But, but it's also an experiential claim, and that makes it irrefutable. Like, and hence religious. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if it can't, and, and it's an assertion. Because I could say to you, I could we could say in response, "Hey, I got a lot out of this meditation. I'm feeling revived. I'm feeling refreshed. I'm feeling invigorated and inspired. Like learning to be mindful has deepened me and awakened me and made me more insightful." All you know, of which are inarguables, right? The pasana samatha, the agendas that we can talk about maybe another time. Like I feel more tranquil. I feel more insightful. That's a very crucial pairing in the mindfulness conversation that, that we become more, how should we, how should I put it? We become more acutely receptive and receptive. Uh, we might, we might translate samatha receptive tranquility an ability to kind of receive the world, not passive, but a receptive an acute receptivity and of where, where we are fundamentally in a state of equanimity and tranquility. That is co-related and, and, and co-extensive to the other term that they use. That's the word vipassana, which literally means seeing into, mm -hmm. right? Or, or dissecting or discerning or discriminating. Vipassana is usually translated insight. So we are as insightful as we are calm. We are as calm and being calm is because you're insightful. Like they make that correlation. Like you can't stay, you can't stay really calm, like really sorted out in your feelings and thoughts unless you comprehend the situation, unless you see into it. Right? And it's all about, again, I mean, if we want to summarize, it's all about how dangerous and volatile and whirlwind our lives are and what we need to do to address that. And that's why I think the larger agenda, even if we don't take the religious goal to heart, is still viable and still valuable. Like life's a storm and how are you gonna how are you gonna weather it? 
So Douglas, I want to I want to take that pull on that thread. Life's a storm. How do how do we weather it? How do we get by? Uh, and get to like, what does this mean for us mere mortals who are not professional meditators? Uh, you know, how is this an art of living? Right. And uh, does the phrase intentional living perhaps serve as a I don't know, a beacon or a guidepost or, or some, mm -hmm. some foundation for us to hold on to. You know, as so, so from, very, from the very start, the assumption of these, of these practices of meditation and these practices that, we, that we've come to call mindfulness is that, is that they are as important as they are efficacious and skillful. And so we don't have to become professional meditators. We each arrive with our own needs. We each arrive at our own capacities, at our own commitments. We each come to our lives sorting out what it is we want. And the strategies of mindfulness were to, give, were to address the issues that would, most, that would help people where they are. And so that... that that practice of living artfully is bringing the mindfulness to you, not bringing you to the mindfulness. Right? In other words, the, the, the strategy of, of, of a teacher of meditation, the strategy of someone, if I, were, if I presumed to teach you the suttapatthana, right? the satipatthana, if I, if I presumed to be a teacher of this, I wouldn't teach you the text. I would teach you what it is would help you so that we could then go further and mm. we could then go further if you wanted. Mm. And so we don't, we don't teach to the text. We teach to the person. The Buddhists had a word for that. They called it upaya and that artful living is skillful, but that, but so it really works on two issues. Like, are we helping people? Cause this could be true or this could be, you know, we've already pointed out like this is an enormously complicated, sophisticated, comprehensive map that guides us through consciousness to a religious goal. And you go, wait a second, I just came to meditate. To which, like, whoa, you know, like, settle down. What the heck, right? And so what you really want to say is, how can I help you? Right. And, and that means, how do I get this to work for you? That's the efficacy part. And then how much of this is skillfully presented? And that's where I think, well, even as we get into contemporary mindfulness, that's where I think the genius of this especially as we're seeing it now, actually works. There are people who are trying to take, to distill and refine these sophisticated and complicated practices and make them work for everyday people, make them work in everyday situations, make them, make them artful, mm -hmm. to which I would say that's an entirely traditional point of view. We don't teach, the, we don't teach you the text. We, bring, we, bring, we don't bring you to the text. We bring the truths of the text to you and however much and in whatever way that's going to work for you, that's skillful. So we want it to work and we want it to be artful. We want it to be skillful. And that strategy saturates the yoga traditions, not only Buddhists, but all the rest of them. Right? One thing to kind of take up the entire, like we've spent a lot of time today and, and I think correctly and rightly explaining the sophistication and complications of these materials. But in fact, the practice of these materials begins with someone saying, 
Could you give me a hand? Or these are my needs. Or these are my experiences. Like, this is what's happening in my life. Got anything? Like, some, like someone trying to live more intentionally. More, yes. More intentionally, more deliberately, more insightfully, more, more connected. So that this, so that the thing that's always been true, life's a storm, feels like something that we're not, we're not just withstanding and enduring, but we're, we're able to, we're able to move more fluently, more, more, more virtuosically with, with, with greater sort of care and concern and intention more deliberately through the maze and the maelstrom and the problematics of life. How do we, addressing people where we find their needs is the art of yoga. I mean, addressing people's needs skillfully and adeptly, addressing people where we find them and how they address their own needs, therein lies the art of yoga. And art, yoga is an art because it isn't a body of teachings. It isn't just this complicated recipe and lists of terms. The, the artistry of yoga is our capacity to deliver helpful, nourishing, empowering, life-changing teachings in the lives of everyday folk who express their needs and are sharing an experience of humanity. So helpful. Well, I hope it's something. Coming full circle, as you mentioned earlier, you're indulging or simply just sharing more about your own personal experiences, mm -hmm. your own personal points of view. Going back to what that was like for you, meditating with your teacher in India at 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning through to today, what, what, what is mindfulness for you now and is there anything that would serve as a nice wrap up at this point in well, the conversation well, it's, it's kind of you to suggest such a thing i think that the 40 plus years of meditation with a certain amount of of commitment and a certain amount of of rigor you know it's like anything else really derek like if, if you want to write, you should write a little every day. If you want to ride a bicycle, well, you know, you want to stay fit or you want to learn, you need to do it. You need to like make a commitment to those practices little by little and again and again. But I would say this, that, that what mindfulness has really done for me is it's allowed me, it's given me permission and it's given me empowerment to reach into my heart and to reach into my feelings and into my thoughts and attempt to bring them to light, to, to draw out of, out of feeling and thought, to draw out of the inner experience and into the world so that I can make it an expression in words or I can make it an expression in offering to other people. Mindfulness allows us to connect inside to how we really feel and what's driving us and what's motivating us and what's moving us. Mindfulness allows, opens some gateways to, the, to our subconscious and delves into the unconscious and allows that storehouse of feeling and motivation and power to come into our lives so that we can like take that morning meditation 
and know that whether it went well or not, or whether no matter what we thought about, we're we're we are step by step going deeper into that resource of our being, and we are bringing more of ourselves into the world. We're bringing a better self into the world. We're bringing because otherwise we bring only fragments and bits. If we can bring, if we can bring the things that come from the patana, from the foundation of our being through a process of mindfulness into our conversation, into our compassion, into our care, into the way we care for ourselves, to the way we care for each other, into our care for a world that needs, that needs our, that needs our consideration, that a world where climate change and political strife and war abounds. Who are we bringing to that? And mindfulness is that invitation to go deep and go deeper and every day bring more of ourselves to the story we want to tell, bring more of ourselves to the experience we want to make offer. Mindfulness opens the gift of the heart. It opens the gift of the self. And, and when you open the gift of yourself, you can make that gift a gift to others. And it sounds like by definition, because you're doing it across all of those different contexts, it's not just something you're doing cross-legged, sitting in the morning. This is moment to moment. Right. Well, that's the, the point is, again, you know, how do we bring what's inside out? Because we're going to bring the outside world in. Like, that's going to happen. All you got to do is get up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, or in, like turn on the news if you can barely stand it, or just drive to work, or whatever it is you have to do. But sooner or later, the world's coming in. And the question is, are you ready for that? And who's coming out? And so, sure, mindfulness may formalize itself in some quiet time, in some interiorization, like in a few minutes with yourself in the morning maybe even 20 minutes, maybe even 30 minutes. It's a long time to meditate. You'd be surprised. But drawing on that wellspring gives you a way to receive the world because the world's coming <laughs> with all of it, with all of, its, all of its dimensions and all of its... And, and who do we want to bring to that project? Mindfulness is... Whatever mindfulness is, it, it is that question. Mindfulness is the question who do I want to bring to mind? Who do I want to bring to the world? Who do I want to offer today as myself? Beautiful. Thanks, man. Thank you. It's kind of you to say. Well, That's... yeah. But I, I think that that gives us good reason to say, I could learn to do this. And I could commit to doing this. And I could, and, and if I'm patient, and and have just just enough courage like just go to your heart just enough to say okay then one of, one of the things i can say to our listeners is that little by little and again and again that makes all the difference you know it's it's like what you've learned on the yoga mat like you can make and let me make one more comparison for those of us who've who started in postural yoga i bet under the guidance of an experienced and, and gifted teacher, like find one of those glow teachers and they're going to get you really, they're going to get you pretty far a lot faster than you thought. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then what those same teachers will tell you 
is that their own evolution, their own development was not only accelerated and very sort of rewarding in those first months, those first years, but then, then the process was distillation. It was refinement. It was little by little again and again. And that's where a more, that's where greater virtuosity and, 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 a, and a more fulfilling sense of the value. So you can make a lot of progress learning mindfulness and meditation strategies and techniques early on. You're going to get a lot of acceleration. You're going to go, you're going to go from zero to 60 really fast. But then it's going, but then the commitment to care and to continue just to kind of stay with it, you know, it's, it's like anything else, but it's a, it'll nourish and expand you. If you, if just stay with it, you know, just stay in that game. Don't give up. That's lovely. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thanks a million. I had a great time today. I hope, I hope it was helpful. Didn't talk too much to eliminate. No, so good. A lot of material. You know, before we go, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing what your own meditation process looks like. Well, my own meditation process has evolved over the years. And I think the simplest way to describe it to others, because, because I've spent a lifetime sort of studying and working on this material, like personally and academically, it's that, it's that my, medita my own meditation practice, um, sometimes it's simple maintenance. Like sometimes, sometimes it's, it's just enough to kind of, I almost think of it as like, like think of it as the way you would do a yoga practice. Like some days you do just a little restoration or just a little maintenance. It's like just to make sure that you've touched base. And then some days you do a hard practice or a longer practice. So sometimes my meditation practice is a very simple kind of mindfulness. I'll even say that in a terrible hurry in the morning, I pause, I take a few breaths, I drop a flower, I look up at the sun, and I say thank you. And maybe on a certain day, that's all the time I really have. Just to look, to take a deep breath and feel that gratitude is heaven itself. Like just let the sun shine, just hold this day together, thank you world, mm -hmm. you know, thank you body. And then other days, um, I, I have very developed resources using techniques in involving mantra, involving ritual, involving practices that are usually considered esoteric or eclectic, but they're very kind of practical in my world at this point, because you, you sort of develop that. And it would be like, it would be like having any sort of something that was really kind of meaningful or important to you. Like, I don't want to sound glib, and this doesn't mean to sound silly, but if, if you were a committed cyclist, like some days you would take a day off or some day, and that would be your practice. Right. Like you would be refreshing yourself, right? Because that day you took off isn't the day you didn't ride. It was part of your riding. It's intentional. It was intentional. That's the key to, to a mindfulness practice is that, is it make every day intentional and bring some, some artistry to that practice. But don't forget that like, you know, the day you take off, then you have another set of practices for another day. So, and, and some of those are hard and some of those are, I would say my own meditation practice continues to evolve. I would, I think of it as something 
as something very much a work in progress. 45 years in, I meditate every day, sometimes for a minute, sometimes for 40 minutes, sometimes for an hour of very detailed and, and, and technical kinds of ritual with mantras and yantras and all sorts of techniques derived from the tantric tradition that I was reared in and have learned and practiced and can teach others too. That, that lives in me every day. And to make, to make the artistry of your own self-care and the artistry of transforming your gift to the world, that's, that's a yoga. That's a life of yoga. That's a life of meditation. Wonderful, Douglas. I couldn't have wished for a better conversation. This is exactly what I was hoping for with you. For those that are interested in going deeper uh, on a variety of subjects, I'll put a link in the show notes to all of the lectures you have on GLOW. I'll also link to the courses that you offer through your platform. I just I just have to call out that like if you're interested in doing a, a full year or more, it's like 100 classes just on the Bhagavad Gita, that's there. You just started a two to three year long project of weekly two hour sessions just on the Mahabharata. Just to give you a sense of scope and depth, there is just an incredible uh, uh, fountain of information there to be had. May I say, Derek, that there is an archive of storytelling where they were called that we created during as COVID as COVID came to us. I reached into the community, and then Zoom was here because I'm a college professor. And every Saturday we had a two-hour story, a free a free course. So if anyone wants uh, just to dive in and uh, those all of those Saturdays, there are 100 plus two-hour storytelling. They're all self-contained. It's just another story from from the mythologies, from important texts. Some are from Mahabharata. Some are from other resources, the Puranas, the Yoga Vashishta, these very sort of lovely kind of myths and storytelling traditions. Um, each week is its own event, and um, and. There would be 100 people, 30 people, but we always, there's, people are always welcome. So there's an archive of free things. And then I just want to say that in, in our learning archive, like when you study, like if you come for the Mahabharata or you come for these other sessions, uh, a significant portion of that tuition is redirected to India because that's our goal. Our goal is to be able to give back and to support, especially girls' education in India. We're very supportive of that. And we want to try to, I want to spend the rest of my life giving back to the people who gave me everything. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. Thanks so much for having me. This was a real pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider, Red Cub Agency, for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself, because our world needs you. 
Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills. Derek Mills.